This is Who Killed the Radio Star. Welcome! Coming back, gotcha. We're coming back, gotcha. My name is Steve. And I am Tyler. We are here today to talk about Woodstock 1999. It's episode one of blank. Two? Three? Well, this is the thing. As last week, Tyler was putting a lot of ambition out into the air, and he's like, look, we're going to do four-part series deep dive. Do not remember this. On Woodstock 1999. This does not sound like me. And we're we're sticking to it. Like we're you you laid the tracks, and we're walking them. But I don't think we're gonna go for. Are we parts. doing this for like yeah? Is this a twelve month excursion? You said Are we that. going hour by hour. You did said I promise that. this? You uh yes you Ugh, did. Dear Lord, you did. You actually propositioned to me that we would make an entire month of this. See now I'm remembering this and I like this and we should probably bail from this topic right now. So. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but Akon decided to make his own city called Akon City, <laughs> which is real, and we, real. we're not going to talk about it today, but if you Google it, if you go to AconCity.com, there's you actually an entire for the next episode. interactive website that you can you can prepare yourself for, for a topic that is coming. Hope you're ready for the next episode. Akon, Akon City, where is it? Con. Today, we are here to talk about Woodstock 1999, which Woodstock 99 is very much in the zeitgeist. Build a city every day. Of the popular... Culture? Culture. There's really... (laughs) Now... Of today, and very much... There's been a lot of coverage on this lately, That's it. That's it. There's been a ton of coverage on this. There's been two very popular... uh, It was a movie. HBO put out a movie. Yeah, documentary. Netflix, uh, put out a doc and Netflix doc series. Netflix put out a three-part series. HBO Max one one hour, two hours. I think it's like an hour and a half. Or, sorry, I didn't mean one hour. One one episode, <laughs> two episode. It's a movie, so it was one. Was it just was it just the one? It was a movie. Yep. See, like yeah, I watch it. Probably should probably shouldn't lead with this, but I haven't watched the HBO Max movie since it came out. But that's fine. This isn't a documentary about the movies. Well, that's the thing. Is like I. I have a lot of feelings with this episode. I have a lot of feelings in this episode. This entire like uh, this entire situation. Now, mind you, I didn't really look into it too much. Revisiting the first HBO Max doc, but I had a lot of feelings when that came out, and then a lot of those were brought back up watching the Netflix series because I have so many feelings around Woodstock '99. The facts are all there. We're going to cover them, guys. We're going to cover most of them, but. Some of them. I just have a lot of feelings about this, you know? I think this is the first episode we've done where I have a lot of opinions and thoughts and, like, things to actually bring to the table other than being like, guess what? Uh, David Spade's not a lizard man. Well, David Spade is allegedly a lizard man. You know, like, I this this one I actually have a lot to contribute. Well, we were, we were a little young when this happened, but not necessarily well, too young that's the weird th- that's there's people you. in they, this they documentary me up for point one of my multi-part ted talk i'm going to deliver on this goddamn podcast part one we were 11 when this happened yeah and so there's people in this documentary who are 13 14 recounting their time there right like we are definitely by far too young to have attended woodstock 99 it was within travel distance from us I have friends who I who know older people who went to Woodstock who are not that much older than us. That makes sense, and I think that's why I have so many feelings about this. Is because it's like at a very formative time in my, you know, life. You know, you're 11. You're in what grade? Six. That's like grade six, I think. Grade seven. You're you're starting to. Everything started to escalate. You're kind of like transitioning out of like kidhood into like young adult. You got hair growing where it never was before, right? Maybe puberty's you got happening. Smells. I did. I don't remember coming when, out. I don't remember when puberty happened. How many uh, pizza pops were you crushing a day? Because oh, I'll so tell many. you, I, I was, a, I was six. between six to eight. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and uh, just cans of Coke. Just crushing them. I don't even remember drinking water from like don't age need it. like eight to fourteen. Don't need it at that point. Don't need it. But like we're eleven, things are happening. Feelings are weird. You're starting to define yourself culturally. And a lot of these you're listening bands. To, unfortunately, you're listening to Limp Bizkit oh. and Corn. God, I love Limp Bizkit and Corn. Let me tell you. I, I this, Watching this Netflix series made me actually play Limp Bizkit and Corn songs again and unironically enjoy them. Nah, it was still kind of a little ironic. But well, you know, he knows like well, all the words to every Limp Bizkit oh, song. I know and he's so li- like he said, he's acting like he doesn't listen to it. Ugh. But it's like, we got, a, we got a couple drinks and then Limp Bizkit comes on and he is mouthing every single word. But that's the sad thing. 
is that I do not listen to Limp Bizkit ever aside from those situations. You started to look more and more like Fred Durst as you get older. Too. That's fine. I'm okay with that. It's a whole He's different a thing. He's a silver fox now. So if I end up like Fred Durst, he is. I'll and feel and and I still hold that the newest Limp Bizkit album isn't that bad. You, I have not listened to it, and you have. That just shows you how much I don't actually really care about Limp Bizkit. But there's you know? still a solid twenty songs that are embedded into my brain and will never leave you need them they're great they're formative and and revisiting some of these bands because this also like got me on a whole other fucking kick of like all those new metal bands which is not good and i had to listen to it gotta, at my work you gotta finish i have one employee guys i manage a store and it's just me and one guy does that make me much of a manager not really <laughs> i am the senior member of a two-person staff at this point <laughs> And he is 96. So he's eight years younger. Nine, technically, because he's born like right I thought at the you were end saying of the year. He's 96 years old. <laughs> no, no. He's nine years younger than us. And so for him, this is all just nothing to him. He has no memory of this. It's all it is is hearsay. And But I remember when this shit went down. Yeah. I remember asking my parents to get the pay per view. Back mm-hmm. then, I'm probably watching a lot of wrestling. Yeah. I'm getting pay per views all Some, the time. Maybe a little MTV. Oh, hell yeah. Right? So Catching this what you can. specifically is like, so just, I just wanted to set the stage up front that like, this is like, it's very strange <laughs> to talk about this. Tyler's emotional today. I, is I what he's really am. Say. I'm fucking going off and I understand that I'm going off, but it's just insane to me that like, like covering this and really getting into it is a side of, of my personal history. I didn't know that even existed. This it's is a, a dark side. event. It's a dark side. It's a gross side. I don't want to know about your history with corn. I don't even I, remember most of these things happening. I was there for a lot of it. When they're, when they're like, hey. He dressed like Jonathan Davis for two years straight. <laughs> from like age 12 to 14. I tried to dress like, like Jonathan Durst. It was half Jonathan Davis and <laughs> half Fred Durst. So I had gross. massive cornrows with a backwards red hat. And like half of a beard and a goatee. And and he was just walking around. Glasses. <laughs> he was just walking around all the time, just going like, <laughs> I still scat all the time, you know. But 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 like <laughs> like my list, like I listened to that music though with my coworker beside me. It was embarrassing. He just thinks this music is absolutely god awful, and. Honestly, it is, but it doesn't keep it from being embedded embedded into my brain. It's a flavor. People like anchovies on pizza. I feel connected to these young, angry youths. Well. Until I remember that they're like 20, and I'm like, oh, by the time I was 20, I was nowhere. Like, You were not these people. No, but like, part of me looks at it as like, I felt that way at that time. But I was 11. You were 11. <laughs> you had no power, barely any agency. You didn't... You, you really didn't have... The mindset that a lot of these people had. These people are insane. So. And I was too. When I was 11. An 11 year old insane is different, right? It's just like you fucking eat a bunch of candy and then you put on that song from Star Wars, right? The Phantom Menace. Okay. I need to just rewind (laughs) us to the front here. Because I have just front loaded this with a bunch of fucking baggage. Let's just talk about let's just let's just get into the beginnings of this. Well, let's let's just treat this like a normal episode instead of Tyler's fucking therapy couch. It'll be it can be both. <laughs> but right right from the top or you know this point of the top, you know the as we said there's these two docs that that are out there they're they're great and they both cover sort of different aspects. They're not the exact same thing. And Dev- then look, let me tell you listeners, I'm not here to patronize you. I'm not gonna. He's we're not, not. We're not just gonna sit here and talk about well, the history of Woodstock and what Woodstock '69 was. Like, y- you guys get it. We well, don't need to do a whole fucking preamble here. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk a little bit about it. Okay. For like a okay. second. All right. But you know what? We're not gonna like go so deep that we waste 30 minutes of a three-part documentary just talking about Woodstock '69. Well, we can do another three-part on Woodstock '69. Okay. Look. I didn't want to talk about this until the end of the episode, but I'm pitching something called Woodstock 629. Okay. Next to June to September, the sixth and nine months, I'm in. we do a 16-part comprehensive documentary completely. That overlaps with uh, Secret Santana, though. That's in August. Oh, that's true. That's true. Okay, so we take a one-week break and just cover something that's completely antithetical to the show because there is no conspiracies surrounding Woodstock 69. Antithetical. That's the word you said? Yeah. 
And I mean, I, I'm I, I'm sure some myself and some of our listeners are like you and your big head. Uh, what the are you complete talking about? opposite of the mandate of this podcast. Excellent. <laughs> the but we're gonna cover Woodstock '69. <laughs> we definitely are gonna cover Woodstock '69. <laughs> the documentaries, uh, check them out. Both very good. Both some of our sources for today's episode. The HBO one is called Woodstock '99: Peace, Love, and Rage. And then the one on Netflix is called Trainwreck, Woodstock 99. Trainwreck, great series. Highly recommend everything in their canon. Check them out. As Tyler just said, we aren't going to talk about Woodstock 69, and we're not, except that we are a little bit. Just so much as so is like, you all know what Woodstock 69 was. It was a festival of peace, love, and unity. What yeah. was the tagline? I believe, I think that was it. Peace, love, and unity? I have a mug that says it. That's yeah, a lie. you do. I literally have a I've wood. seen it. Anyways. I, I believe that's it. It was, you know, one of the first, it was the first biggest, like, festival of its kind at that time. A lot of big bands came out of it. It was a cultural movement, yada, yada, yada. But the man at the top of it was a man named Michael Lang. And, and he just... Based on this, the docs we watched, he was 20 when this happened? He was young as shit, yeah. If you look at any footage of Woodstock 69, Michael Lang, like 95% of the time, is riding a motorcycle uh, with no shirt on and a leather brown leather vest. I was going to say, it's always a vest. Yeah. yeah, and he's just like cruising, and he's always his attitude is always sort of just like, yeah, man, it's like all good. Like, we're, it's going to be beautiful. Like, we're going to figure it out. And he has, like, you know, he he's he's a juggernaut in in. The music world he's put on, he put on Woodstock. He put on Woodstock 94. Well, this he is, put on Woodstock 99. He's he's done other things as well. It, this this is the thing that dawned on me on the podcast watching him was like, is he, or on the podcast, on the documentary watching him, it's like, is he just, is he just riding high off Woodstock? Not knowing much about Michael Lang other than Woodstock. Is he, is that his life? Did he just was like, is that the free pass for just putting on the original Woodstock? Does he get to live that existence? The thing is, is that personally, I think like Michael Lang, like if you ask me, it's like if you look at his, I don't know, I don't know his entire track record right now. And they don't also like delve into it. I've never heard anyone talk about anything other than Woodstock with him. But if you look at the Woodstock stuff, I mean, it's varying results. He's he's batting one for three, honestly. <laughs> and I mean, if you count, count all the canceled ones, one for five. I mean, Woodstock 69 objectively is a fucking shit show, which we will get into. Like it, it happened and it was, there's a lot of like great and beautiful aspects of it, but there's a lot of fucked up aspects of it too. I did find that weird about this Netflix series where they didn't really touch on the negative aspects of it whatsoever. No. It was fucked up shit. They didn't touch on, like, and this is the thing too, is it so a few, like a few years ago, we've mentioned before this, this podcast existed a few years back, but we've rebooted, right? This yeah. is this is the reboot. Full bomb. And we did all of this Woodstock stuff back then. Full Enzo. And these documentaries didn't exist Got at that matrix. at that point. But if I recall correctly, Woodstock '94 was not the paradise that it's now made out to be. And I could be incorrect. There, I mean, we got to get back into it. Warning incoming game. We got to get back into it and take another look. But I believe there were some issues with Woodstock '94. It wasn't as perfect. I mean, comparatively with Woodstock 94 up against 69 and 99, it did, I think, go the best. But, I, yeah, I believe there's some issues there. Well, no, it just seemed like less of a thing. Yeah. The scale of it seemed smaller than 99 or 69. I remember a big sponsorship of Pepsi. I remember Pepsi being all over that one. But, I again, we got to hold that until we get back to it and, and double check. But Woodstock 69 had a lot of, a lot of road bumps. A lot, you know, a lot of errors that came up, and they sort of just figured them out as they came and got their way through it. And Michael Lang has always had this sort of very chill attitude. He's like aloof and boring and almost absent-minded. Like it just he's, he's gives off strange vibes. He's very strange, and especially if uh, if if you watch the, these two documentaries, you can clearly tell that they are set, they are shot years apart from each other just based on how michael lang looks in his interviews yeah yeah i do Um, remember that aspect because he does look a lot younger in the hbo one and in the netflix one he starts to like he looks like a marionette yeah well they say at the end of it he dies like three months later so like he's did he die yeah he dies three months that's the last thing in the netflix documentary is there's a there's a picture of him like standing up and then it, it 
words on screen gives you three months after this interview we died and now so i feel like a dick he's like right at the end but he of looks like a skeleton is it wrong for me to say that no he does not look good in the second doc but yeah i guess there's a reason for that well rest in peace r.i.p michael langdon langdon <laughs> yeah you were, you were the best angel anyone could ever hope for on a, a show that's way outdated even for me so woodstock 99 was a festival that michael lang threw with uh another promoter named john sheer sure and this guy fucking sucks <laughs> he now as much as we can sit here and throw shade at michael lang this guy <laughs> hits the key. Okay, it's like going up to bat in baseball. This is the proof of. This is like the proof of fake it till you make it. <laughs> just say things. You just, <laughs> just just say things and do things and just like you know. He is the equivalent in these two documentaries of walking up to the plate and instead of like striking out, like another analogy, he literally shits his pants. He takes a big old shit in his pants, and that's the end of his at bat. And he just walks at first base. And he does. And everyone's like, "Well, I guess we're gonna let him." Twice he does this. He goes out here and just spews nonsense He's and just... tries to pass blame on everyone. Yeah. He's apologetic for everything. <laughs> this one point where he's like, "Did a few rapes happen?" We can't control that. <laughs> Listen, we got out. <laughs> jumping, what? You're jumping you way too far that? ahead, but you, you did. I believe that is a quote. This man, this is not some promoter talking about the fucking 1960s or 70s and the Woodstock 69. Yeah. When or the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess there wasn't rapes, but <laughs> there was a lot of sex. But like, you know, these events before music events were like this, where they were like massive turnouts, massive gates, massive festivals, right? You can like kind of excuse some of the things he says as ignorant for like that period when they didn't know anything but it's goddamn 1999 festivals have happened giant events have happened and this man is so apologetic for every or or not apologetic for anything he's just like no matter what the accusation he's just like did a few people get gouged maybe they did i don't know know. you know how many people enjoyed corn how yeah. many people listen to corn? All I see when I see the footage is a lot of people moving up and down. It, it looks like, like they were having a lot time. of fun listening to corn. Nobody died. So people died. <laughs> Woodstock '94 happened, and comparatively, at least from what these documentaries paint, it was a great experience for all. But it didn't make any money. So Woodstock '99, five years later, yeah, it was another attempt it was another like there was a whole aspect of it that was played up of like let's do it again like woodstock 69 like this is wh- what is it f- 30 years after the fact 30 year anniversary yeah. 30 year anniversary 94 is the 25 but really this was about doll dollar bills at the end of the day and so many decisions trace back to that when you look at it did michael lang want the money like mike like michael lang is definitely part of this he's equal part with John Sher, sure. Yeah, but like, do you remember how his name is pronounced? Is it Sure? I think it's Sheer. But John Sheer really wants to make some <laughs> some money on this shit. <laughs> it does seem like you know. Obviously, I think they're okay. So what I want to say here is, I wanted to. I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate. I think a lot because there are things and aspects of it which I think are kind of exaggerated to some extent, but or more like. Again, I just went on a giant fucking rant about how it's 1999 and they should know better. But that doesn't mean like everything is the same climate as it is now. It's it is a different time. There are different expectations, and there are certain things that like make more sense in the moment than it does to someone looking backwards. You know, like that. Like this is when music is at its peak. This is like yep. directly. This is like this is when MTV is at its peak. This is this is in the downfall of MTV. A lot of people talk still about Napster. This is Napster, but Napster wasn't actually a long period of time. The actual Napster client being available and being the thing you downloaded off of did not last very long, especially for like the mainstream people, especially as two people who were talking here who were eleven. You know, 11-year-olds are finding about it, like, way before, like, adults are, but, like, you're still, like, not at the very beginning of it. So, when it did explode... But Tyler was one of those kids that he was like, I'm going online tonight. I'm a hacker. I'm going to hack hack into the system. I have a mechanical keyboard. 
I mean, you did know a lot more of that shit than I did. But I'm just saying kids. that, like, it, that this, like, like the the downfall of music is the internet in some respects, or the downfall of the commercialization of music is the internet. Some would say it's MTV in this time period. Well, exactly, it's it, right, and it's just like it's it's right there because I think Napster tears it down. Right, Napster's the first open music share client that's like super popular. That everyone's downloading off. People have bandwidth to do it. And the music just changes like right after this. So you're really looking at the peak. You know, like boy bands are big. Like every, every, like, you know, a lot of people point out about the boy bands. But like there are so many, every genre at this point has like a crazy multi-millionaire artist that has been manufactured as like the representative of each of these music cultures. And, you know, like there is like the reggae guy. There is okay. the rap guy. With those guys uh, that sung the Macarena. That was around that time. That right? was around that time. You know, they were the Latin dance group. And they were killing it. And they made too much money for what they did. But what I'm just saying is, like, that's part of the corporatization, I think, of Woodstock 99. Is like, I don't think you can really have a Peace, Love, and Unity music festival in 1999 and have any <laughs> yeah, sort of... because 1999 was fucked up. Right. And like <laughs> they had already like figured out the commercialization of music so much that there was no one who's going to be willing to put this on for that amount of money or the artist wouldn't be willing to perform for less amount of money. You know, I think that's part of the original Woodstock is that people were going there for the experience. People were performing there for the experience. Mm-hmm. And in 99, it's like, well, my paycheck is this. And then you, you know, you have to pay the, the artist that amount of money and then you bring that corporatization into it. It was one of the, if not the most expensive festivals ever ever held up until that point. No one had really tried to pull something off like this, where they had a, over a hundred like big bands, and they made the decision to hold it on a military base, a decommissioned military base, yeah, which is incredibly ironic, yeah, for Woodstock, yeah, in every sense of the word, you know, like the entire thing, the, the corporatization of it, the vendor village having it on a music or on a air force air force base it's all just antithetical i forgot i did it again it's a word of the episode <laughs> it's it's just the complete opposite of what woodstock 69 was all about right you know you, you, people talk about burning man now and i think that's more of the modern incarnation of woodstock where yeah it's all barter system and trade and there's a you know it's become more corporatized over the last few years from what i've heard but it's still at its heart, it's supposed to be something that's a little bit more open than that. Uh, even though it is something like $600 to attend. But. <laughs> Jesus. Know. Is that how much it costs? I think so, yeah. Like, it's up there. Like you, But you gotta, you gotta, I guess, call the herd to some extent. Once it gets to be, if it's too cheap and then you have, you know, a city of 500,000 people showing up to this one remote spot in the desert, things get a little bit more complicated. They get a little freaky real quick. They're already super freaky there. They're super freaky. From what I've heard. Right from the get-go, with the ambition from the outset to just make money and decisions being made like holding it on an Air Force, this thing was just like cursed from the top. Uh, you know, off the top of your head, like what is it? What does an Air Force? What does an Air Force base have? A lot of cement. Yeah. A lot of a lot of tarmac. Chili. It's got chili if you're at a good one. Yeah. At Chili's. Ooh, maybe right? now. But that was talking about the corporatization of existence, <laughs> you know, got Chili's open on Air Force bases. We've all a lot of us have been maybe we all haven't, but a lot of us have been to music festivals, you know, usually on the grass, not on solid pavement. Tarmac at that. Yeah, the tarmac thing is a big it's a big deal, isn't it? You know, you're, you're right. You bring to bring that up when you go to music festivals and you got that grass, you've got usually natural shade. It's something natural shade. There was a, next no to none trees. of it. These are things you would normally look at when you were looking to find a a spot, a venue to hold a festival like this. And I think that I think their intentions were good to some extent. It was a place that had infrastructure. It's just you know the they oversight of over yeah they oversaw so like, many things. People are going to camp in the hottest week of the year. You know what this really fucking is, though, at the end of the day? is is a bunch of old fucking white men who have no fucking idea what is going on culturally <laughs> in the music scenes. And they're like, we're going to make some money here. Let's make it happen. Who, it can, is, we, who can we book? Yeah. Who are the biggest acts in the world? Limp Biscuit, Corn, Sure. Sure. Okay. Sure. Insane Clown Posse. What is that? What are they? Yeah. Okay, let's get those. Yeah. Like, they... There's... In some of these documentaries, there's some younger people... Who at the time where they were younger, you know, they're 20, 20, whatever, 
20 something and they're trying to chime in and say do you know what you're doing right now do you know who Wes Borland is <laughs> right do you know who Fred Durst is you're putting these people on stage why are you doing this and they're sort of like shut up they they'll make us money and they really this is this music festival is the equivalent of putting the mentos into the coke bottle yeah and, and they're also it's like i'm pretty sure like at this point when they play this set Limp Bizkit has like Nookie out and that's it. And the, the song has been out for like four weeks. Like, oh, but no, so Break Stuff is definitely out. I don't know if it is. They play it. I've seen it. I know. No, they play it, but I don't think like the music video is out. The, oh. album, the album's out. But I think Nookie has been a single on MTV for like two months at this point. The album comes out like a month before Woodstock. But you still have a monoculture back then, you know? Like, it's not yeah. like now where everything's fractured. Like, so many fucking people were buying that Le Biscuit album when it came out that to really capture, like, again, we should probably save all of this, actually, because I don't think Le Biscuit yeah, plays we, until Saturday, and we're trying to we're trying to lead at the front. Yeah, But I'm just gotta, saying that, like, we'll cover that more when we jump on Le Biscuit, because I've... As we're kind of, almost a half hour deep. Like, this might be a three-part. This, yeah, like, I have so much to say about Le Biscuit. Because they're a band that I know all the words to and do not care about them. That it's just like they are culturally <laughs> significant. It's weird how culturally significant they are to a certain very like micro generation. But yeah, like some of the what I'm what I mean to say is some of these bookings really don't not not just spur of the moment, but they are such a reflection of not just like nineteen ninety seven to two thousand, but literally like right. They just hired everyone who is hot. At that moment. With no rhyme or reason. Yeah. And Sheryl Crow is one of these artists. So was Megadeth. Yeah. So it took place on July, between July 22nd to July 25th, 1999. Yeah. As we said, the tarmac. The so, heat, so you said that one more time? What was it? July 22nd to July 25th. Okay. So Limp Bizkit's Significant Other comes out on June 22nd. June 22nd. Literally one month before. <laughs> Dang, and that's the album. That's the album that has is Nookie on that. Yeah, it's Nookie. That's break stuff. Break stuff. Yeah, that's like all of like rearranged and together now. Like One break month. stuff. Break stuff isn't even released as a single until February of the next year. Holy shit! And you listen to that crowd; they know every word to break stuff. They love it, and that's They're not even stuff. like a radio single. Like that's just like the angry song. That's a deep cut on the album. <laughs> Jeez, man. And so, like, it's it's the top of the summer, and the heat was a major, major factor here. Even on day one, so Thursday was the pre-show, and even six hours into pre-show on Thursday, it, it, you have people complaining about the heat. You already have water oh, yeah. supplies starting to dwindle. July, but the end of July in that, like, we're from that area. We're from that climate. And end of July, it's humid. It's cooking. It's stinky. It's like it's a, fucking thick. Ugh. You know, you're getting like it's like an air fryer. You're getting like He's thirty degrees it. Celsius and like forty degrees with humidity. It is just disgusting. And you've got all these. You got two hundred fifty thousand people at its peak. But like Thursday, you're probably looking at hundred and fifty. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And they're already feeling it. Because they're literally on the tarmac. There's nowhere for the water to go. It's just like the Humidex is probably yeah, so, insanity. So let's get into the, the water. Is that right from the start, as people enter into the festival, all water was confiscated. And why, you ask? Well, to make money. It's as simple as that. You take the water, they got to buy it back. They were selling water for like four bucks a bottle inside this festival. It's 99 It's pretty expensive for a bottle of water. Today, maybe you got to pay that for a fine bottle of... Uh, like a glass, like what is that called? Like Voss. Voss. Right? No. Well, like that's that'll be a four dollar water in a glass a, bottle. No, you can get like if you go to a fucking paying for the bottle. If you go to a, a festival, you go to a show. Fiji. You go to a sporting event. Bottle of water is four dollars right now. Straight well, up. right now, but that's what I mean. Is back then this was different though. I know, but like I feel like the inflation really can't be that high now. But just back then, I feel like the standards were different. I. There is someone in one of these documentaries who says that back then a bottle of water would normally cost around 60 cents. I agree. I, I heard that. And I agree with that for that moment. You know, it may be a 60 cent like dollar store water, you know, like a fucking Walmart water. 
someone's buying Costco. Like a, a bodega's buying a 24 pack and yeah, selling yeah, yeah. that blank amount, you know, maybe. But like capitalism. Yeah, I just feel like the entire like what was the the festival was only like $160 for tickets or something, right? Like it wasn't even that steep. Yeah. Well, one of the fun parts in these in the Netflix documentaries, you get to see the the uh, former mayor of Rome, New York, which is where it took place, Rome, New York, in upstate New York, just like the other Woodstocks. Uh, different spot, but everything's in upstate New York. And he's a fun little character. He's a, he's kind of a weirdo. He's seems like a very straight-laced politician who yeah. found an opportunity to sort of try to slide in and be hip and and try to act that that way and be yeah. be with it because he's 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 in. He is a hundred percent in. Yeah, and he really truly is. There's some great footage they share in one of these docs where they're at the beginning of the festival in an attempt to christen the festival. He has a bottle of champagne wrapped in a tie-dye shirt that he's smashing against the stage trying to break. And that bottle just will not break and does not break for about 10 attempts. It's worth watching the doc alone just for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I want I just want to point out something about Rome, New York, too. Rome's the size of like Bowmanville. I've which been is to where Rome, we, which is we're from, which is very small. And like we're talking like thirty thousand people. But we've had music festivals happen pretty much there. I know, but that kind of puts into context of like what kind of mayor this is, of like what caliber, what size mayor this is, because this is a town like you know, it, thirty thousand is a bit of a misnomer because there's a lot of like little small towns around it. You know, it's like it's it's the main big town in that little area, so it's a little bit kind of different than us, but it's not too much different. And so you're talking about a mayor of like. You know, a 30,000 person town with maybe like 50,000 people within like, you know, 25, 30 kilometers of it. It is not a big place. And this guy's like, I'm going to be super cool. I'm going to fucking book Woodstock here. <laughs> He's having fun. And it's just something about like putting into context the size of the town this mayor runs. Like this isn't like a small city or anything. This is a town. Yeah. This is a hamlet. <laughs> it is. And this guy's out here just like, I'm going to be super cool. Guys, I'll bring a limp biscuit to town. Fred Durst is coming. Oh, Fred Durst is coming you know, Fred, to Rome. Uh, you know, have you ever heard of West Borland? You're going to love them. They're all coming in. It's, it's, it's going to be a blast. So they shot big. They were aiming for the stars. Not only were they doing things like trying to get every, every one of the biggest acts in the world in 1999, but they also had things like an action park with skateboarding and extreme sports <laughs> happening. Extreme sports. This is pre-X Games, people. They had a movie hangar. They also had Tibetan monks show up and do a ceremony. Yeah, to try to, like, soften the vibes. But, like, when you really look at the lineup, they had no hope. They had no hope whatsoever. Like, the lineup is just pure madness. And they try to lead with Tibetan monks and James Brown. And then just <laughs> fucking goes off the deep end. There are some weird choices for them to try to like calm the crowd, you know? Like a Cheryl Crow played. We're looking at the first two days of the festival right now. Thursday and Friday. And Thursday is the pre-show and really it's a lot of, you know, not a lot happening. Not that most just, people aren't there. We don't have a lot of big names No, on I just brought Thursday. it up on, I just brought up Wikipedia here. And the first two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the first eight bands, which is essentially half of the Thursday crowd, don't even have Wikipedia entries. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I've never heard of any of these bands. Some of the more notable ones I have heard of who played on that Thursday are Third, Third Base. Third Base, maybe. G-Love and the Special Sauce. String Cheese Incident. String Cheese Incident. Uh, do you know Bernie Worrell and the Woo Warriors? I don't. I don't either, but they're second to last. It looks like they're on uh, that, day. that uh, the, the main guy is one of the members of Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, so that's a fucking banger. So, the, on, like, honestly, if... We'll we'll get into it day by day here, but if you look at Thursday, it might be the one of the strongest. For me, it might be one of the strongest sets because you're not you're once, not wrong in a weird way. Like once you know third, you, you catch third base, right? And then we got a vertical horizon and strange folk. I don't know that maybe they're maybe they're a good time, but maybe you go and you get yourself a you know expensive uh, hot dog and <laughs> a water. Dollar falafel. Yeah, right. And then you come back and you got G Love and the special sauce. It's a string cheese incident. You got Bernie Worrell and the Woo Warriors, which I guess is a funkadelic experience. And then you got closing out the night on the Thursday, George Clinton and the P Funk All Stars. That's just a good night. It's true. It's true. But if you are there and you decide to go to the amp, amp3.com, amp3.com, I think it's a play on both of those <laughs> emerging artist stage, you get Immortal Fibers, or no, Immortal Fibers, Simi, 
Chris Glenn, Gary Durden, and the Clay Pimps. That's P I N P S. <laughs> say, say that again. Gary Durden and the Clay Pimps. Pimps? Nope. P I N P S. That's confusing. Pimps. Perhaps this is just a, 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 a misspelling on Wikipedia. I'll have to check out Gary. And then leading, and then or finishing off the night, Johnny Rushmore. <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Love Johnny Rushmore. Again, no Wikipedia entries. Friday, on the other hand, is a completely different story. They start pulling out the big guns. <laughs> and as Tyler said, James Brown is first up to bat to open mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the festival. And something that the Netflix documentary gets into is that John Shear starts speaking, the promoter, he starts speaking of how he had secured contracts with every performer except for one, James Brown. Thomas Brown. James Brown had not actually signed his contract because his management team was very strict in that James must be paid in full before he even goes on stage. Yep. And this is something I sort of looked into. I tried to look into if this was uh, true. And it does It does appear that it, it is true and that James Brown did have a reputation for being one of the best businessmen in music. Horrible human being. Well, uh, we, can, we can get into that. The way it's told in the Netflix doc is, I don't know, because John Shear sort of takes this position where he ta- he sort of says that he told James Brown to go fuck himself. Like, he literally <laughs> says in the documentary, I said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> go fuck yourself. And then it's just it's like, one, two, three, get out. <laughs> <up." laughs> and, you know, they splice it all together. So I don't know exactly how that played out, but James Brown did end up playing... Uh, I imagine he was paid right after. I don't know why he wouldn't just fucking sign his contract. It's a contract. <laughs> they don't really go very deep into the the resolution of that. It's just basically John Shea like, and I told him to go fuck himself. And then they just show James Brown for a bit and they let it go. But they also kind of frame it that James Brown, or sorry, um, they also kind of frame different aspects of the documentary. Like people, like the lineups are seem kind of like all over the place, you know? Like they don't really like get into the fact that on after James Brown, you have G Love, Jamiroquai live, and then Cheryl Crow. Yeah, they just kind of like zip into you Cheryl Crow. That like look at but that they, fucking look at that shit. That is the first like four hours, five hours of of a Woodstock festival. But they also say that they on brought f- Cheryl Crow on to like relax the crowd. You it's know? fucking wild to tone it down. It's, it's but but G Love, Jamiroquai, and Live are not Limp Bizkit, Corn, DMX. You know, like it's not no. like. But even if you look at James Brown, G Love, Jamiroquai, Live, those are four separate audiences. Yeah, you can oh, like yeah. all of them, but absolutely, those are different audiences. Those are different vibes. And then Cheryl Crow following, and then let's just get into that full lineup, right? In order on the E stage, James Brown, G Love and the Special Sauce, Jim Iroquois, Live, Cheryl Crow, DMX, <laughs> The Offspring, and Corn, and Bush to wrap it all up. Just be, just, you know, everyone's gone a little fucking crazy. Let's just have Bush come on to the end <laughs> and fucking there. calm them all down. That's the E stage. Meanwhile, on the West stage, we got some unknowns here. We got Spitfire, Oleander, the Umbilical Brothers. I did, I did upon reading, find out that the Umbilical Brothers were like a comedy act. Okay. There was some comedy. I believe Andy Dick did a set. Okay. All right. Sounds right. Mo came on after oh, the man, uh, Mo Umbilical Brothers. Now Mo, that's... Mo's a jam band. And you know what? <laughs> I probably would like Mo now, but all I remember from being young was like, Mo sucks and fuck them. Now this is here where the West Stage starts to get a little bit more lit i love lit because lit is next followed by buck cherry then the you roots make me complete Fall- yeah. <laughs> yeah i love i love me some lit it's terrible but i love it then the roots insane clown posse and once again george clinton and the p-funk all-stars he's everywhere who i think he might be the all-star of woodstocks woodstock 99 because it just seems like he got out there and he funked he funked shit up and Things went okay. Yeah, at every stage. So let's take a look at that fucking day. That Friday with all of these different acts. And then all of these different tones and vibes and, and things changing. And keep in mind, the general attitude, as we've touched on here, is, is, is bad. The general attitude of these people, these 20-somethings, these teenagers, 
they are living in a world where American Pie is the biggest comedy in the world. Yeah, and that's another thing like I was They're, talking about was like just specifically 1999 is just such a formative time in my existence and I like the things they're 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 spouting out about 99 are all just so familiar. They're living in a time of the WWF attitude era, right? Absolutely. And and no one makes this connection here, but Woodstock 99 is fucking professional it, wrestling. It's, fucking it's just like it's the WWE. It may as well have been sponsored 100%. by 100%. Like I, every one of these fucking silly fucking misogynistic little white drunk boys, right? Are all trying out to be fucking the next John Cena. They, no, they all want to be in DX. They all want to be. all want to well, be a member. Of you know, DX. not everyone knows DX. I was trying to pick a little more. Uh, <sighs> people know John Cena. Right? They shouldn't. They should know DX. It's crazy. It's the. They all want to be little degenerates. <sighs> they all want to fucking be like too rude for, for school. They want to so, swear at their moms. And and not take their vitamins. These aren't Hulk Hogan fans. They're all telling everyone to, to suck it. They, oh, they're doing that. You know, you know there was a sucker or two. So there was a M- MTV did a pay per view for this. And back on on the note of making money, I don't, like I don't this, think MTV did a pay per view. I guess MTV doesn't have that. But I think, MTV was constantly covering it, and much music was for us. I think they were connected i don't know okay there was a pay per view event there was a pay per view it cost fifty nine ninety five a cool sixty bucks pretty expensive back then for three it, days it is three days and it's three pretty much full days of content but still pretty steep i it's, wanted my parents to get it i remember asking that I tried to get them when, to do it when you look at that pay-per-view now which we're like i don't even know if you know what pay-per-view is but for anyone who doesn't know like pay-per-view it was a weird fucking thing on tv where you would buy a special event and it would be a live it, it, it feed. still exists for sporting events but i that's guess it's about it at this point but the, so I don't think the any... term pay-per-view is used, is it? No, it's still used, yeah. Like, it still happens, even even with streamers. Some streamers will have, like, pay-per-view events where even though okay. you've already signed up for the streaming service, there's still pay-per-views. But it's, it's like, well, the bigger way of putting it is, like, this was the only way to observe certain events, especially live events. That was, like, if you were at home... Well, that we, was how you got live events in 1999. Like, and there was no internet coverage. And there was a really weird sort of expectation in 1999 where it's like if you purchase a pay-per-view event, it's like you were going to see boobs or some form of nudity. I, it was kind of unspoken, I, I kinda, I kinda but I feel like saying. if you were to ask the majority of the pay-per-view audience in 1999 what they expect, mm-hmm. they're going to be like, I don't know, man, probably some nudity, hopefully. Yeah, and I think you know the lasting impression of Woodstock both 69 and 94 was that there was a lot of boobs. So perhaps a young man getting that pay-per-view would be expecting to see some sort of like weird girls gone wild. <laughs> side I don't know. Thing. I don't know what it was with 99, but there was a lot of boobs. It was, everyone was taking their clothes off. There was a lot of naked men too, but there was a lot of women taking their tops off. It's and- funny you say that because when I was watching this with my significant other, she was saying that, Men were obsessed with boobs in the 90s. She's older than me. She's six years older than us. So yeah, at this so point, she was prime age oh, yeah, for prime age. 99. She had friends who went to Woodstock because we are from southern Ontario. So it was not a far drive. I mean, close enough anyways. And she said like a weird thing about growing up in the 90s was men's obsession with boobs. It was a real thing. And she felt that's something she took away from watching the talk was like, oh, yeah, men in the 90s, they all wanted boobs. Um, unfortunately, they there is see boobs this is a big fo- like that's it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Like the the attitude in, that was there in 69 where it was peace and love and people were literally there for the music. It's like people were here to do drugs, to get fucked up, to fuck and to fuck C-boobs. shit up. Yeah, and it was like it was. They were horny, and they were fucking. They were. <laughs> they were angry. They were angry listening to biscuit and, and corn. It was so. It was ugh, ugh. the lineup, Tyler. <laughs> well, you know, not to go out on another tangent, but that's the thing about the '90s. Is like the '90s are so reeked and caked in excess. You know, your post '80s when all these people like exploited everyone's resources and just sucked the money dry out of the government. And so you have a bunch of like, you know, people in their early thirties, early four, like thirties to forties who made all this money in the eighties 
they are have influenced the culture and it's everything is fucking corporate and gross and over sexualized and overstimulated and over angry and people don't even know what they're angry about there's no real conflict we're pre 9-11 the u.s the western world's still like winning quote unquote like they're still the biggest superpower by far and there doesn't seem to be an end on the horizon and you have all of these children of that era who fucking suck they suck (laughs) and i'm we are kind of we're kind of the tail end of it you know (laughs) we're kind of them because i think the woodstock 99 is definitely like the the generation x festival you know like a a sort of a sort of generation like not the traditional generation x that like gets portrayed in media or in art because there was a very artistic you know kurt cobainy like grungy rejection of what the the overindulgence of society but you also have the other part of that which is the half that they were rebelling against they were rebelling against something for a reason there are all of these people and especially like young people who are just fucking gross and that's kind of what i think inspired this kind of response by culture against like jockey bro dudes because they existed still and they oh, exist yeah. hard at this point. And you see them all at Woodstock 99. So when Sheryl Crow took the stage, the crowd just starts chanting, show us your tits. Which Real is move. an unfortunate thing that happened almost every time a female took the stage at Woodstock 99. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Really didn't matter who they, who they were. It's, Did not matter. It's pretty wild. Um, and no one was chanting to hang dong. Well... They weren't, but the, some of the, the Dongs were some hung. of the documentaries. Uh, I believe the HBO one has has a couple women in it who um, had like "show us your dick" signs and stuff like that, and like yeah. good for them. Like let's get those wangs out. There's not a lot of like great positive moments from day one or going forward, but some fun things. Is so meanwhile, you know, on the West stage, we got the Roots take the stage, and they had Erica Badu show up unannounced. Yep. And she came out doing her parts, and everyone was like, wow, this is the best music festival I've ever been to. fucking killer. Nothing can go wrong. The Offspring, when they took the stage, came out with Blow Up. They had Blow Up sex dolls of set up on stage with yep. the Backstreet Boys' faces yep. taped to them. They went so far as to even announce the Backstreet Boys as if they were performing. Yep. And then Dexter Holland came running out with a baseball bat and beat them all down. With did you did you see in that footage what that baseball bat was? Was it was it? I don't know. It was a big red. It was a big red. It was a big red. So that is a who made those? Uh, uh, Fisher Price. Fisher Price. Yep. You guys know those uh, baseball bats made by Fisher Price? There was a big red one and a big yellow one. Yeah, they're they're cartoonish cartoonish in their proportions. Well, when we were in high school, we took a big red one, turned it into a bong. That's right. And when I saw that big old baseball bat come out on stage <laughs> in that dock, I was like, "Holy shit, I've smoked weed out of one of those things." It's classic. And the even even him like uh, quote unquote executing the <laughs> blow up Backstreet Boys with that bat. Really still cartoonish and silly and stupid and lame. It is, and he's having fun, but it's a wrong audience for it because that audience, I don't know if they took it, like, literal, but, like, they loved that fucking shit. Like, these people hated the Backstreet Boys. This was an audience of people that were tired of MTV's bullshit. Uh, Most of them didn't even really like music, and there was just this general attitude of, fuck the Backstreet Boys, fuck that that kind of shit. Yeah, fuck the commercialization of the music industry. So the offspring coming out like that definitely incited violence a little bit. But, you know, Dexter Hall and them went on to stop the set a couple times and call people out for the way that they're treating women and and for the violence that's happening and to sort of, you know, give a voice for the women there, which I don't know if it was heard. They don't cover that too much on the docs. I will say it's in the HBO of, one. It's in it, the HBO one. It is one. in the HBO one. Is their interview Dexter Holland and uh, what's the other oh, guy's name? Oh, that's right. They do interview like Skippy yeah. or something. Yeah, that's covered in that one. It's it's interesting what is left out of of, of each of them. Like ICP is not in any of these documentaries. No, it's it is strange the I, way they frame I it. I think it's important here to to say on record that in an event where so many horrible things went wrong, it seems the Juggalos made it out pretty unscathed. Yeah. Like, ICP was here. Like, that is like the queen of the Juggalos. Rest in peace. Yeah. But that's like the the Pope rolling through. Yep, it's true. So, like, there were 
Without oh, a doubt, a bunch of juggalos here. But what is juggalo culture in 1999? How how deep how deep does it go? You know, it's nothing like it I is don't know. today. You're right. I don't know. You know, now it's a whole other subgenre of music and a, a lifestyle choice. But back then, I don't know. I don't know where they were. We we watched before recording. We watched a little bit of ICP's set. The whole set is on YouTube. Most most of these sets fantastic. are on YouTube. ICP is great. Shaggy Two Dope is wearing a superman costume uh like a christopher reeves superman like old school yeah and they have a lot of like fun stage decorations and like weird sort of juggalo-y satanic looking (laughs) statues and stuff but they have like a shrine it's like a cornucopia (laughs) it's like a cornucopia shrine a giant cornucopia of fago full of fago which is the drink of the juggalos if you don't know if you don't know what a juggalo is it's like a hip-hop clown fago is also absolutely delicious which is like I don't want to say it's like a real swerve, but when I first had Fago, I was like, this is really good. It's good. There's a reason this shit goes off. It's a lot like a Fanta, but there's way more flavors in a Fago. It's true. Uh, it is a car is a carbonated uh, flavored beverage, but the Juggalos love it, and uh, ICP has always had it as a thing, and they shake them up on stage and they spray them all over people, and they are spraying all sorts of Fago. There's like in the foot, it's like you see them just hucking two liters of Fago into the crowd, and you know like those are just beaning people in the head. Like it's pretty wild. Give people are going down from Fago headshots. There's one guy, you know, there's one guy who's just hoarding all of it. He's like, everyone's like thirsty, but I had, I drank Fago, oh, I honestly, not only those three days, but for 11 days. I feel great. I mean, I didn't sleep the entire time. <laughs> didn't need anything. Just, just survived off of Fago. And uh, Shaggy Too Dope, thank you. Uh, you helped me get through Woodstock. I mean, there is a point when they're on stage and they're like, are there any juggalos here? And the crowd is just like, like explodes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, All right. So they're there. They are there. The I think I just think that they are like, yeah, this isn't my first fucking rodeo. Like I've been to a show before. <laughs> it's, you know. How many people have gotten stage? Woo! Now, DMX was also on Friday. DMX is a really interesting one. He's also in his fucking prime. He's in his fuck. Too. He's in his like Rough Rider prime. He's yeah. wearing a Rough Rider. He's wearing the red. Yep. You know, he he's and he is fucking killing it and there's some great DMX moments in his set. But again, it really sets the stage for the attitude that these people displayed over the following couple days. Yeah. You know, DMX, a lot of N-bombs in that music, right? For the amount of white people that are in this crowd, they are singing along. Definitely. Like, and he is doing call and response. Yep. Which is, you know, again, maybe he was just like, I wonder if, I wonder what's going to happen if I do this. I don't think in 99. I don't know. He's thinking about that. Yeah. You know? But like, yeah, you do this, this in any footage you see, the amount of visible minorities is slim. Is slim. Real slim. It's very slim. It's a lot. These are white, of white people. A lot of and a lot of like white boys, like young yeah. men. A lot of lacrosse looking or like it's fucking frat boys, man. It's like a frat boy bullshit. It is a lot of it. And Did you also have to think too, like this festival is only about half an hour outside of Syracuse, and Syracuse is one of those towns that has like seven colleges in it, like seven big universities. So you probably just have an influx of just drunken frat boys from Syracuse. I mean, not just Syracuse. I mean, it's like 250,000 people. Obviously, there's not that many people. But, like, percentage-wise, they're all going. And not just Syracuse. You know, the surrounding area, big time for universities. So you have tons of kids coming from, like, 15, 20, an hour away. Just That is not a hard trip to make <laughs> no. when you're that age. You know, People are just like, let's do it. Yeah, it's bad white boy energy. Whew. So when Corn took the stage, end of the night, they're wrapping things up. They tapped into. Like, you can watch it. You can see these. You should like. You, like you should watch some of Corn's set from yeah. Woodstock '99 if you haven't seen any of it it's because something happened. There's rare moments where a mass number of people can be commanded. And sort of, or filled with energy like this, where, and it's fucked, it's corn. And you're like, what is happening? But corn did something, like they tapped into some energy there at the perfect time before it got too fucked. And it was, it was bubbling right at the right amount. But corn comes on and just like, that is like the only time in the world 
that we have had like 200,000 people like fucking all of corn in one place. Like, yeah, it's definitely. fucking wild. It's it it it's so wild because like you see the escalation of the night in those three music acts. You know, DMX Offspring Corn yeah. is just a really good snapshot of 1999 and a way to accelerate <laughs> the the amplitude and energy of that crowd, you know? If you Talk to a corn fan in 1999, like a diehard corn fan. They'd be like, I dig DMX. DMX is cool. And they'd be like, you know, Offspring's pretty great. You know, you could see the escalation, but I fucking love corn, you know? And the by the time corn gets out there, these people are frothing at the mouth. And corn is the first new metal band that really plays this festival. And just looking at all these kids. They seem like new metal kids. Well, time to, you could probably say that ICP can work its way into the new metal, and they were no, not that's fair corn. enough. Yeah, but they're on the other stage, right? Yeah, they are. They're on the you know. So people are making an active decision, and the East stage was the big stage. So I'm sure there are people who are like, "We're going to ICP." If you're like really like more into rap than Corn, or you think Corn maybe is too mainstream or whatever, but that fucking crowd. Well, is they didn't overlap into it. Aren't they, like, right beside each other, though? I'm pretty sure it's, like, they're on essentially the same time. So, the people, like, there's no getting to we the got, front of Crown. So, we have it, and Saying Clown Posse goes on at 7.15. They're 7.15, 8.15. Okay. On the West Stage. On the East Stage, Corn is 9.10. So, that makes it even 10, worse. 10. Then you have all the ICP people migrating from the ICP stage to go see Corn. And they're trying to shove to the front. <laughs> well, and if you skip the end of ICP, because ICP is till 8.15, if you were to skip the last little bit and make it back over to the East stage for 7.50, you can catch the Offspring, then Corn. So you can get, like, if you're running back and forth, even though it was like a mile, I think it was two miles, actually, between the two fucking stages. Um, so it would be very hard to do. You were amped up, though. But you could get ICP. You could maybe even squeak, find a way to get some DMX ICP Offspring corn all inside of you yeah you're not wrong yeah corn like i mean like you you know bush comes out there i suppose if you're booking woodstock in advance bush is probably a bigger name than corn yeah it's just it's just weird they're two completely different audiences and i think i don't know if it is i think corn is probably bigger but bush did follow corn and (laughs) Gavin Rossdale is like, you know, there's footage of him. He's pretty concerned going on to that stage because yeah, there is an electric energy. And those people, you could have tossed a body into the crowd and they would have eaten it. They yeah. always would have been, they just would have ripped <laughs> it to pieces. It's like Lord of the Flies, fucking chaos. But Bush is kind of an unsung hero. And they're a little sung of Woodstock 99 because they pull it off. Like he does come out and he does chill the crowd out and does sort of embody the original Woodstock spirit of 69 for a moment where Bush's set is yep. very much very peace and love, very chill. And I think a lot of the crazy people probably left to go commit horrible deeds at this point <laughs> to go do things in their tents that we'll never speak of again. You know, Bush, Bush pulled it off and they got the fuck out of there as most of these artists did when they were done because it was starting to get a little fucked. <laughs> We started to get <laughs> greasy as shit. We're about an hour in in here. Yeah, we should we should we should kill this and then move on to Saturday. I think Saturday might be a, a whole other episode too. It could it could be. This is a little juicier than we thought it was going to be. This one might even end up being two. We're gonna have to put a pin in it. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune back in for Woodstock '99 Part Two, which will be out the following week. Check us out on Twitter at WKTRSPod. Look it up. Hit it up. Send us things. Follow, like, subscribe, ask questions. We will answer them. And you can email us at the same WKTRSPod at gmail.com. That inbox is overflowing, guys. We really appreciate the reach out. We can't wait for the... Uh... <laughs> Little, no, let's pull the curtain back and let's tell them about what we actually have. Been. We keep getting fucking emails like asking us to join the Illuminati. <laughs> it's, it's From like true. lots of different people. <laughs> 
Like, we've probably gotten like seven of them now, and they're all from different accounts. I don't know what it is. Is it the nature of our podcast? Just all podcasts get it's, this fucking message. I, no, because my other podcasts don't get this message. It's the nature of our it's podcast. It's the nature of our podcast. Yeah. We've been invited to join the Illuminati multiple times. And I don't know. The, the membership's still pending. Like, yeah, we'll we're, we're weighing the pros and cons. I mean, after remortgage the house, we're going to pay the entrance fee, but I think it might be a good idea. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here next week for Woodstock 99, part two. 99.2.